You are studying the text of the third section of this book, which has to do with streets that go nowhere or things that hinder the growth of Christians in the way of God. And we are studying about life under the sun on Pennsylvania Avenue, and we began that study last week. Today, we want to continue that study on the theme of what can the Christian expect from government. I had the privilege of living in a nation that was once a colony. I had the privilege of watching the people of that nation come to a consciousness of their national unity. I saw them and their struggle for freedom. I was there when they threw off the yoke of a European power that controlled them and established their own government. But I saw something else taking place. I saw literally the whole population began, or rather begin to believe that the good life would come to them through the activities of government. Literally billions of people in our world today believe that. They believe that if they're going to get anything out of this life, they must have good government that will give it to them. The tragic part of it is I find even Christians who believe that. Those who have this view, they range all the way from the Marxist totalitarians on the left to the libertarians on the right. Their theme is the same. Their ideas are different, but their theme is the same. The government, government will bring them in to the good life. The author of this book of Ecclesiastes, I believe, was Solomon, the greatest king of his day. It's amazing what he, who had all the power of a government, who under his leadership, he spread the borders of Israel until they almost reached the promise of God made to Abraham. They did not. That remains to be fulfilled by Christ at his second coming. But almost under Solomon they reached him. Here was a man who had the opportunity to do for his people what government can do. And he's the one who wrote this eighth chapter. He's the one who wrote us about the first thing which we studied last week. What should be the believer's response to government? Now Solomon's point there, as you'll remember, was that the wise man... Now understand this, that when Solomon in Ecclesiastes 
his writing about the wise man, he is writing about that man which in the New Testament would be referred to as a Christian who is maturing in the way of Christ, who is yielding the Lordship of Christ and walking in the fullness of the Spirit. That is a New Testament definition of Solomon's wise man in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now his point there is that the wise man, though he admits that he cannot understand all that goes with life, he recognizes that through the commandments and the promises of the Word of God, that he is able to properly evaluate his particular circumstances. He realizes that God does govern the times of his life. He realizes that God has also outlined for him in the Word the way that he should walk even in the midst of the heavy that come into his life. He obeys the laws of government. He does not rebel against government. He recognizes government as a legitimate authority upon the earth. But the wise man's faith is not in government. It is his faith and trust is in the Lord who will control his time and give him his proper procedure. Now, having pointed out that to us, and that was our study last week, he went on, goes on rather, to talk about what should be man's expectation from government. And that is given to us in verses 9 through 11. Will you look at it? Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 9. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun. Solomon. That great king, with all that power in his hand, examined the best he could do with his authority to govern the people. He examined it. And what does he say? All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man, to his hurt. The first thing he says, what should a man expect from government to be hurt? That may shock you. Government's role is to protect its citizens and make it possible for them to secure what they need for life. But government product is only to hurt its citizens. Search out history. Look at read it carefully. You will see that that is all the government can do. Even the best of governments, that is all it can do. Government can control inflation only to cause a recession. It can stimulate the economy so there is no recession, only to have 
and inflation. It can help the producer, but then it hurts the consumer. It can protect the consumer, but then it hurts the producer. Or no government has found a balance for the act. Not even our own government. This is perhaps one of the best on the issue. Second thing he points out is that government also cannot control the wicked members of its society. Look at verse 10. So then, I have seen the wicked buried. He said, I attended the funeral of a wicked man. Those who used to go in and out from the holy place, they are soon forgotten in the city where they did this. This, too, is futility. They tell me this is one of the most difficult verses to translate in the book of Ecclesiastes. But its message concerns a very common phenomenon. A citizen enjoying the full benefit of a community. Even the holy places, he goes in and out of the holy places of that community. He belongs to the church. Churches of that community. Why, he might even be on the board of directors of a church in his community. But in his private activity, he's a rascal. He's stealing. He's wicked. He's vicious. Then he dies. And we all attend his funeral. And what do we hear? Why, suddenly, all of his wicked deeds disappear. And the people speaking at his funeral eulogize him. And Solomon said, this is a futile thing. No government to date has ever succeeded in punishing even one-third of its criminals, especially those who are in high places. The third thing, the third negative thing he said about what, gov what we can expect from government is in verse 11. Because the sentence, and by the way, it sounds like something from today's paper. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. The ratio between the number of arrests made and the number of trials conducted and the number of convictions attained is a scandal in every country under the sun. And worst of all, it's a scandal about which very few people are concerned. The crime, why that rate 
prime time on our television. The arrest, well, that might be mentioned in the last segment of Good Morning America. The conviction by whoever hears about it and who pays any attention to it, because even if convicted, we know that some soft-headed board will let him out and on the street within a very few weeks. Pessimistic? No. The product of human government. The old adage, crime does not pay, has now been replaced with instructions on how to launder crooked money. The product of government, written about by Solomon many, many years ago. What really concerns us today, however, is what should be our trust in God while living under a human government. He says a very interesting thing there in verse 12. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times. Now, we're just not quite sure what it means there. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times. Does that mean that he commits the same sin a hundred times? Or does that mean, mean that he commits a sin against 100 different people? Now, there's no way of ascertaining for sure how to change it. And it is. And may lengthen his life. You know, he gets a trial lawyer. He's caught red-handed with his fingers in the cookie jar. Doesn't make any difference. He gets a trial lawyer, and it's postponed this year, and postponed next year, and thus... He prolongs the length of his life. He says, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know. Oh, I like the positive nature of that. You see, everything that he said back in verses 9, 10, and 11 are negative. Now, here's a real positive. He says, I know. And he tells us two things that he knows. The first one is in verse 13. I know that it will be well for those who fear God. Is that what it says? Oh, no. Read it again, will you? I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him what? openly. They don't only they not only go to the holy place on Sunday supposedly showing a piety and a fear of God. No. From Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every day they stand out among the people as those who trust in God. Those who trust in the Lordship of God who believe in the sovereignty of God, 
who accept at face value the Word of God, the commandments of God, and the promises of God. They believe them, and they walk in them, and they follow God. They're trusting in Him, and they're doing it openly. Solomon says, I know that he cares for his own people. And he keeps. It is well with those who fear God openly. If you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior, if his blood has washed your sins away, and you are standing out in the midst of wherever you are as one who trusts Christ and you're seeking humbly to walk with him in obedience to him, this is the assurance of God giving you. He takes care of you. All of us have read Dickens' Christmas Carol, but we sometimes miss the point at least one of the major points. Do you remember when, when Scrooge arrived at his office and he was greeted beside the door there by those who were singing hymns to the praise of God because of the birth of Jesus and rejoicing in the fact that Jesus was born in this world? Do you remember his response to them? Humbug. But listen. You remember what he said to himself as he made his way to his dimly lit desk? Do you remember what he said to himself there? He wondered why those who had so little material prosperity could be so happy and so joyful while he, as he counted his multitude of shekels, had not a drop of joy in his heart. And he wondered about it. Why should he wonder? For those who fear God openly, it is well with them. And God promises. Yes, they'll have trouble. Yes, they'll have heavies in their life. But God's blessing will also be in their lives. He will take care of those who fear him openly. And the second thing that Solomon emphasizes that he knows is given to us in verse 13. He says, but it will not be well for the evil man. It'll be well for the man who fears God openly, but it will not be well. It's the second thing he knows. But it will not be well for the evil man. He will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. That's the second thing. He wants, he points out to us the certainty that God will demand accountability from man. Here's this man. He commits his 100 sins. He just sins over and over again in the same old pattern. But God doesn't judge him. He goes on living. And he says, see? See? 
God doesn't hate sin. My friends, we are not to let this phenomena, this phenomenon that we, have, we see all around us, we are not to interpret this to mean that God is soft about sin as governments are soft about crime. One of God's most widely published characteristics, his, one, of, one of the best known attributes of God, is that God is long-suffering. He does not fly off the handle. He is long-suffering, however, not because he is soft on sin, but because he is not willing that any should perish, but that these sinners should come to Christ and believe in him, repent of their sins, and receive the forgiveness and the blessing of God in their lives. The wheels of God's justice grind slowly to give man ample, ample time to repent. The second fact is that well-known, well-published fact that he is saying here. No matter how long you, much you sin, no matter how long you live, someday you will die. The wages of sin will be paid. Will you turn with me, please, to the book of Romans? And will you look with me, please, at Romans, at chapter 14? And will you look at a very interesting verse that ought to be marked in your Bible? Romans chapter 14 and verse 12. So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. There it is, my friend. You may sin 100 times and live long while doing it. But soon, sooner than you think, you will die. And sooner than you think, you will stand before God to give an account to Him for everything done in your body. That is a promise of verity from God. That is one of the great things that the Kohelet is teaching us in this book. Look, please, at Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter. Look at the last verse. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's the major premise that he has. The certainty that God will demand accountability from all men. One must either put his sins under the blood of Jesus Christ by confessing Christ as his Savior and having the blood of Christ wash his sins away and make him right before God. One must put his sins under the blood of Jesus Christ or he must stand someday before God and give an account 
for every one of us. God, who spared not his own son, when Jesus hung on that cross, God poured out all the rock and billows of his anger against sin upon the head of Christ. If God spared not his own son when he hung there on the cross before him, bearing the sins of the world, do you imagine for one moment that God will spare you when you stand before him bearing your own sin? This is a fact you need to keep in mind. The serpent, God, will demand accountability from every single one. The third thing that Solomon says about our conduct is that he wants us to understand the conditions regarding his seeming permissiveness concerning human injustice. Look at verse 14. For there in verse 14, we have one of those statements that is very hard for the human mind to understand. Look at it. This is futility, which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. The mind of man finds it very difficult to face this well-known phenomenon. It is all around. But you know, when we read this verse, we generally misplace the emphasis. Years ago, when I was a student at the Moody Bible Institute, I got off of work where I and was going back to my dormitory when a man stopped me in the street. And he said to me, he said, Mister, do you need, do you know where Chicago Avenue is? I looked at him. Now I knew about every avenue in the loop and around about it. I said, What's this? He said, do you know where Chicago Avenue is? I looked at him and I finally shook my head and I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I turned to go. I made about three steps and I stopped dead in my tracks and I turned around and I called him. I said, hey, are you looking for Chicago Avenue? He said, see. could have more than likely spelled it correctly. But he placed the emphasis in the wrong syllable. So do people when they read this verse. We place the emphasis on the fact that the righteous man is often treated as a wicked man and the wicked man is often treated as a righteous man. But that's not where the Kohelet places his emphasis. Where does he place the emphasis? Look at the beginning of the verse. This is a futility which is done where? On the earth. This is not the eternal pattern of God. 
This is not the way that God always does things. But during this particular age of grace, God is not zapping people out because of their sin as soon as they sin. God is long-suffering. God permits the righteous to be treated as wicked. He permits the wicked to be treated as righteous. This is his permission for the present time, but it is only for this present life on the earth. It is not his eternal plan or the way of his eternal kingdom. He emphasizes again at the very close of the statement. Look at the last phrase. He said, this too is futility. This too is a breath. A breath that is breathed out on the cold morning air and immediately disappears. He said, this is a temporary situation which I am tolerating for the moment. And don't mistake it for a moment that this is my character and my plan. I, the holy God, have no permissiveness in my nature relative to sin. Then he goes on to point out to us what is even more important for us to know, and that is the conduct he commends to those who fear him. How am I to live under my government that constantly fails? How am I to carry on my life in the midst of this problems that we face on every hand? What am I to do? And he deals with it very plainly for us. Having assured us that the care of God is upon us, he then in verse 15 says, So I commend pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toil throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Notice this. First of all, please, be sure you note what this conduct does not condone. So many people read this as though it were an expression of the theory of the Epicurean. Eat, drink, be merry, live your life with gusto for the martyr you die. That is not what he's saying here. There are others. You know, many people have found trouble with this verse. And they, the rabbis, as they've interpreted this, find a great deal of trouble. And you know what they've done? They spiritualize it. They say that what it, when it says here, eat, it doesn't really mean to eat food or anything like that. It means to study the law. And when it says drink, it doesn't really mean drink something. It means to do good deeds. Now, that's a wild one. If you can interpret the Bible that way, how can anybody know what it means? Another thing that it does not consist of, and that's what too many of our evangelical friends will say, that what we have here is the best conclusion that a natural man without the gift of the Spirit of God can come to. No, my friend. This 
15th verse as just as much part of the Word of God as John 3.16. This is God's Word. This is God's instruction for us how we are to live under government. Now, please notice it. Notice here. Notice here what he says. What he really says that our conduct is to consist of. What is it? He says, I commend pleasure. Literally, I praise pleasure. Now, I can see your eyes bug out. You know, after all, we Christians are, you know, sedate. And if anything pleasurable, it's sinful. Not according to the Word of God. The message of Christ is not against the enjoying of life. The message of God is against the folly of the pleasures of sin, which are for a season. On the other hand, the Word of God encourages a believer to enjoy his life and live it with justice. Sure, sure, God's Word is plain about the foolishness of drinking beer with gusto. The Word of God is plain about the corrupting of your sexual nature by acts outside of marriage. Sure, the Word of God is very plain about the utter stupidity of polluting your mind with dirty stories and jokes under the pretense of humor. Yes, the Word of God wipes all that folly and foolishness and filth away. The Word of God also tells us that there are much of the activities of life in which we live that we are to enjoy to the full while we're living. By the way, this is a major theme of Solomon. Will you notice, please, in chapter 2, please, in your book, chapter 2, and verse 24, which is the end of his first section, what does he say? There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Will you look, please, at chapter 5? And will you look at the 18th verse? Now, this is the end of the second section of his book. What does he say? Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. And now he comes to the end of his third section of the book. And what does he say? It's right here in verse 15. So I commend, I praise pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat 
and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toil. Have you noticed it? One word running through all of these verses. He doesn't say that you and I are to find our kick in eating and drinking and making merry. No. He is saying that when you and I are doing the labor, the toil, the task which God has put us on the earth to do, when we are involved in this labor, when we are involved in performing the task which God has told us to do, while we're doing our task, we are to eat and to drink and to be mad. Oh, how many people turn to food to find enjoyment and all they do is get fat. How many turn to drink and they say it's there and all they find is belief? How many turn to the little prickly tinsel things of this world that we enjoy? We flip off to Disneyland, we go out to Magic Mountain, we go off to the beach, we go off to this, we go off to that street, go out to do our things, and we'll say, oh, with these, we'll have a great time. Only to end up with a headache and disillusionment and despair. And that's not where it's found. Where is this pleasure found? It's when you're toiling at the task God gave you to do. When you're involved in evangelism when you're involved in helping the body of Christ grow, when you're involved in doing good to other people, when you are doing these specific things that God puts you on the earth to do, when you're involved with doing that, then you have a side benefit of being able to eat and to drink and enjoy your life of justice. Tragic thing is that so many Christians utterly miss the plan of God for their lives. What a tragedy. They spend their lives in work, many times work that they don't even like. And they look forward to the day when they're going to be able to retire from their work. And they say, when I can retire from my work, then I'll really eat and drink and be merry and have a good time. And they have failed to discover the great truth that God has made so plain. By grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourself. It is God's gift to you. Not of work. If anyone should think. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good work. It's He planned before the foundation of the world for us to do for Him during our life on this earth under the sun. Have you ever found out what that is? 
Do you know what God wants you to do? Have you come to study of the Word, from, from digging into the Scriptures, from praying to the Lord? Have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Have you let the Holy Spirit control you so that He can guide and direct you into doing, using the spiritual gifts that God has given to you to go and do the thing that God wants you to do? If you have, then as you're doing it, you are to eat and to drink and to enjoy your life. If you're not, you're one of the most miserable people that will ever be. Where do you stand this morning? Maybe I better say, where do you sit this morning? Are you doing God's will for your life? Do you know that you're doing what God put you on the earth to do? You're involved in that work, that ministry, that production that God wants done here. You may be a mechanic and God wants you to repair cars for people and do it well. You may be, a, you may be an engineer and God expects you to build buildings that will be good for people. You may be a housewife and God wants you to raise your children to the praise and the glory. How are you doing? God put you on the earth to do it. Maybe one whom God has given to where you a unique career which you're coming in contact with people. And there you are shining forth as a light for him. Are you doing what God wants you to do on earth? If you are, then while you're doing it, eat, drink, and be merry. Praise God. You have the best thing that life can give you under the sun. If you do not, if you have all the money in the world like free, if you have the best possible retirement plan that the earth can give you, if you are not doing God that you want the earth to do, go ahead and eat and get fat. Go ahead and drink and get drunk. Go ahead and make merry. It'll be flat and shiny. Because you're missing it all. Oh, dear friends, I plead with you. Right where you are to search your heart. Look into the face of your Savior. Say, Lord, if I miss the book, I give my life to you now. I repent, I turn to you, and I say, Lord, lead me, direct me, show me what I'm to do. And by your grace, I'll do it. For there is the only way to live life with gusto here under the sun in the earth. Heavenly Father, help us to search our hearts before you, dear Lord. Oh, do not let us just let this bypass as a sermon among the many sermons we have heard. Let us not let our life just drift away. Oh, God, let us realize that you have a plan for us. You have something for us to do. And you will show it to us as if we will surrender to you. We pray that you'll move out here and that you will cause people here who have never surrendered to your Lordship to do so, to make you the Lord of their life right now where they're sitting. To make a public confession of it. 
have those who are here who never had Christ in their life. They're all alone out there, and they don't have Jesus in their heart. Help them to open their hearts to receive Christ. Help those others, the Lord, who, who are here and are feeling alone and they need the fellowship of the body of Christ here. Help them to join with us so together we can go on and do this great task that you've given to us. Reason to drink and to enjoy life because we're doing what you want us to do. And this can go along with it. Oh, Father, help us to understand it and above all to make that commitment to Jesus Christ in his name we ask it. Amen.